This is The Shape of Advice, a new podcast series created by Professional Planner. My name is Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus Financial and Editor of Professional Planner. This series is a conversational-style exploration of the advice landscape that draws on the knowledge and insights of industry thought leaders, experts, and practitioners who are forging ahead with new partnerships, augmenting business models, and adapting to new technologies. Please visit professionalplanner.com or get in touch to join the conversation. And now, please enjoy this episode. We're joined today by James Mantella, Net Wealth Head of Managed Investment Products, and Alan Kenny, Head of Corporate, Trustee, and Client Solutions. Good morning, gentlemen. Morning. Great to have you both here. You guys are probably right in the in the belly of the beast in a way, you know, right in the in a growing part of the industry uh, managed accounts. You know, really interested to to learn a little bit about how it feels, what what you're seeing, and, and share that with our listeners. James Netwealth, a little bit about yourself. Where have you been in the industry, and what are you seeing in terms of growth or uh, trajectory of the managed accounts space? Yeah, terrific. Thanks very much for having me, Matt. Um, so, um, I've, I've been in the very much the platform industry now for the last 15 years. So, the last few, the last couple of years, I've been at NetWealth. Uh, prior to that, at CFS, um, my roles over the last five or so years have been very much focused in that managed account space and and building technology to support advisors to deliver um, to deliver advice to their clients. And we know that the, the way advice is being delivered to to, advi- uh, to clients is continuing to evolve. Managed accounts, for one, has been has been kind of the forefront of the industry helping advisors support that, that adjustment and the change, of, the change in the mechanism to, for the way they're providing delivery. Um, in terms of in terms of the growth, the experience that we're continuing to see in net wealth is 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 the growth in managed account is is continuing to, to occur twofold. So if we think if we think or if we compare our figures to where we were 12, 18 months ago, we've seen um, almost a doubling in the size of our managed accounts, um, up to an excess of six billion dollars, and then that's been very much driven by a number of different structures. So we obviously offer retail managed account solutions, which is which is partnering advisors up with professional managers through our retail solution, but also the growth in private label managed accounts, which is very much where we're partnering with advice practices and and, and consultants um, to deliver. Mm-hmm solutions uh, to, to advisors and practices to meet their clients' needs. Yeah, and, and how have you seen technology adoption? Uh, you know, how's that changed? How do you, how are you seeing the, the type of technology and how that's being used evolving? Yeah, it's an interesting point because I, I think over time, you wouldn't necessarily say that advisors' investments propositions have significantly, significantly changed, mm-hmm. but the, the, the big change has come from how First and foremost, advisors are delivering advice, mm. and then the technology that's required to a deliver the advice and support that investment proposition. Mm. So, if you if you kind of think five, ten years back, that the standard approach for delivering advice to a client was paper based. It was advice requirement at every step of that delivery mm. process, and it effectively resulted in bespoke models for each and every client. Clearly. From an efficiency perspective, that takes a lot of time. You think about delivering advice at each step of the process. Um, Recognise that creates significant overhead. Over time, we've seen that evolve, and we've seen that move from kind of bespoke one-to-one portfolios at the client mm. level um, into model portfolios. So groups having an investment proposition that they're delivering through mm. through a set of models. Historically, again, they were they were more paper-based, but often delivered through a technology solution like an investment platform, but still requiring a level of advice uh, provided. 
we then saw that technology um, take a step to, to look towards automating things like records of advice. So it meant that advisors could have bro- a broad uh, investment proposition that they're delivering to clients, but being supported from an efficiency perspective through generation of, of advice documents. Mm. But then from there, and I, this is this is this has been very much the evolution that we've seen over the past five years. Is there's been a big movement towards discretion. And that's where we've kind of seen this evolution into managed account structures, whether that be through a scheme structure uh, under, say, a separately managed account or an SMA, or or something like an MDA, which is a a slightly different licensing structure. Importantly, in both of those structures, it it gives discretion to a manager. And in terms of execution, it can be partnered with technology providers to ensure you get really strong execution and you can deliver that, you can deliver that um, advice to the client in an efficient manner. Yeah. And, uh, you know, later in the conversation, looking forward to kind of digging into some examples that you guys have seen during um, some of the market, you know, dislocations in March and how discretionary um, implementation models are performed and what you saw um, with them in actions. We'll go back to that uh, in a moment, but Alan, uh, great to have you on board. Board at Ironbark, it seemed to be right in the middle of uh, some of this growth. Interested in your journey, ha- how you got there, and and uh, and kind of what you're seeing in this space. Yeah, sure. Um, look, for me, I'm uh, probably around 26 years now in financial services between the states and and here in Australia. I mean, most of my career has been platforms, funds management, um, around product at Colonial for a good number of years. Hmm. Uh, I've done SMSF at AMP. Um, and uh, before joining Arbark, I was running a managed account platform business. Um, and, you know, managed account certainly has played uh, a big part of my role in the last kind of five, six years. Um, you know, in one hand, kind of running a, a platform um, business. But secondly, then in Arbark, where um, if you kind of look at what we what we do, you know, we're a multi faceted business, you know, we're in funds management, we have our own products we take out in the marketplace. Um, but really in the last seven or eight years, we've built out what we call our corporate trustee business. And and that's where we act as third-party RA for other people's funds. You know, whether they're fund managers or advice businesses, building, you know, single sector funds or as we're talking about now, managed accounts. And we think, you know, there's a real space here for advice businesses wanting to build tailored portfolios. Uh, and, and that's kind of really where we play and where we see this massive growth. And to give it context, like we're not talking about things that are on the shelf, off the, on the menu of you know, standardized portfolios. This is advice businesses that are saying, look, let's pause. Let's move from the old role that Matt was ta- uh, that um, James was talking about, you know, where we're doing ROAs for every single investment. Let's move into it either in a managed account or an MDA. And as you're doing that, you really have to think about what kind of solution you want to build for your clients. And you want to bring in the experts, you know, the, the administrators, the platforms, the REs, the asset consultants to really help design kind of those new solutions. And we believe we're at the forefront of that industry and in working with advice businesses, building those solutions out and building them across multiple platforms uh, and looking for a, an RE that can actually help them navigate all the complexities of dealing across multiple platforms. 
Yeah. And we've seen uh, as part of this this growth changes in, in types of structures and business and people who are around these offerings, uh, you know, investment committees, chairs of investment committees. You sit on a few investment committees. Give us a little bit of insight into some of the things that you're seeing in your position you know, on investment committees and, and how advice practices have um, changed and elevated their game in relation to... Um, yeah. I think it's a really important point. It's the conversation that we have with so many groups as they're going down this path. They they already have investment committees. You know, they have a, a you know APL investment committees where they're running the models. You know, the research APL for their own licensee. Where we step in is to say, well, look, if you if you if you and if you, and if you start with the the premise that the investment decision making, the investment governance framework for a managed account for a tailored portfolio in most cases is going to be an investment committee structure. And it's something that we we generally insist upon because it provides rigor, capability, and expertise around how decisions have been made. So it's not just a bunch of people making their own calls. There's actually a process around it. So we typically you know, see an asset consultant sitting on the investment committee or an external model manager, if need be. Uh, and they're doing a lot of the heavy lifting around you know, manager research, asset allocation inputs, and bringing that into the group. Um, we do sit on those investment committees uh, as a general rule. That's not something we do necessarily as an RE, standard RE service. It's something we feel adds value to our clients because it adds that extra compliance governance layer around um, making sure that we're all making good investment decisions. And the way in which decisions are being made are actually thought through and actually compliant. And, you know, this is quite complex. And, and um, you know, being able to, you know, suddenly go, look, we want to switch out of this investment and go into a new asset class. Well, it's probably easy to do that on a platform when you're just dealing with one client. But if you're dealing with multiple, multiple clients in a single financial product, there's a lot of considerations there. So we sit there. We help groups make decisions around that. Um, I think what we see now is the, the, the businesses that get into this space really embrace this notion of we need to make sure that there's the right hands on the wheel. And if ASIC looking at these managed accounts or MDAs and they're looking at, well, this is just another way of advice businesses of getting around maybe revenue or they're just trying to get efficiencies, you know, is anybody actually managing these portfolios? Our view, and as an RE, because we sit on the investment committee, we've got a line of sight. Absolutely, there's hands on the wheel. There's good decisions being made, challenges being made around you know um, any kind of investment decision and asset allocation, and always having the client's interest at the heart of it as well. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a very compelling proposition. Yeah, I want to get into that. What the industry terms as this institutionalization of, of advice. I'm really interested in getting a little bit more detail on that in a moment, Alan. Um, yep. James. We've just had a really interesting period to kind of test this whole discretionary model and um, interested in what you, you saw and perhaps if there's a case study you can maybe take us through to exemplify how this how the structure might have performed uh, during during March and drawdowns. Yeah, it's an, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because you, th- you think about some of the market shocks that we've seen over the past six months, especially, and, and that that really tested a lot of advice structures, not, not, just, not just from general market conditions, but obviously the impact on advisor practices, their clients that they're working with. Um, we spoke we spoke a lot about the discretion that, that a managed account provides. And, and when it comes to the efficiency in, ex- in execution from a client perspective, um, you, you compare the two different advice structures and you start to see, it starts to reinforce a lot of those benefits to that managed account structure. So, if we have a look at some of the, uh, if we have a look at our managed account as a, as a case in point, 
generally prior to March, and if we're using March as uh, as kind of the period that we're looking at, prior to March, we were generally seeing on average around 150 model changes per month across our models. Um, so that's where a manager comes in, recognises they need to ch- make a change to whether it be strategic asset allocation, moving an asset in or out of the portfolio. As I said, on, on average, prior to March, that was around 150 changes per month. We then hit that March period where we saw really significant volatility in the market, obviously driven by some of the outcomes from from COVID-19. And we saw over that period uh, that in terms of the number of changes that were made to portfolios, it increased threefold. So, as I said, prior to March, we were looking at around 150 changes per month. That increased up to 450 during that March period. And again, if you have a look at when those changes were made, it was it was throughout the entire month, but it obviously peaked during periods where there was the most shock. So around it was around the 19th of March, I think, that the market really bottomed out. And not only did we see significant uh, a significant change in the number of model changes that were occurring, it also really reinforced the scale that you get through managed accounts. So if I look at the number of trades that were made prior to that March period, generally we were looking at around 2,000 trades being generated out of our managed account. So when we're reviewing client portfolios, recognizing where they're, they're not in line with, it, with, with the targeted model, there would, there's generally trades being generated. On average, we were seeing around 2,000 a day prior to that period of volatility, but that grew significantly to the point. Um, generally, around uh, throughout that uh, March period, we were looking at 12 to 14,000 trades per day, but that peaked at that mid-month period where we saw that extreme volatility and increased to around 40,000 trades on that single day. So it just shows first and foremost that the, the speed at which um, managers can use their discretion to adjust portfolios and ensure that the, that the the portfolios are positioned to manage any downside risk. So what we saw early in the month was as the market was going down, we saw a lot of managers moving out of positions, either creating holdings in more defensive assets, whether it be cash or, or other defensive forms, but then also positioning the portfolios on the upside. So when it, when it, uh, when we saw that significant U recovery, um, that, that money that was being held in cash was then redirected into more growth assets and portfolios were being positioned on the upside. So, the other important part to that is, is from a consistency perspective. If, if you think about practices and investment, investment committees making those decisions, they make a decision and they can execute the change almost immediately. And importantly, it's a consistent outcome across their entire client base. If, if we kind of take that back to more a, a paper-based, advice-based pro, uh, process where you don't have that discretion, you think about the, the overhead and the challenge that creates in the advice, the advice process. If, you, if you've got an advice practice that's got 200 plus clients, suddenly they're having to generate advice documents and they're having to speak to each and every one of those clients. What's more, before they can actually implement and execute that transaction, they physically have to have the client provide an authority to proceed and, and, and agree to the advice. And, and, and from a time perspective and an implementation perspective, it's just not realistic to do that in, in, uh, in a particularly quick time frame. Time frame. So, suddenly, suddenly you've got groups, you're potentially in a situation where you need to prioritize clients. 
Um, and from a from a client best interest or from a um, a phasier standard three perspective, when you're wanting to treat clients equally, that structure of the managed account really enables you to support that. And and so the experience for our managed account users compared to compared to those that weren't necessarily using that structure effectively meant they were able to see real, much stronger client outcomes, but at the same time ensure that their clients were being communicated with. They could facilitate the changes to their portfolios and then work with their clients to help them understand what was occurring, provide educational material, um, and, and very much very much supporting the efficiency and the client outcome. I think, I think the other thing as well, that, um, you know, to add on to, to James's point there, is, is a term that's used in, in kind of the institutions or the markets about, about implementation leakage. Mm. It, it's how quickly you can get into market and implement the decision that you formally have made. And the benefit of that structure is that because you're not having to mobilize multiple individual clients, because you're not having to deal with the equity issues of who you deal with first, you can get those positions dealt straight away. Mm. Um, and, and you reduce that leakage between when you've made a decision and when you can actually get it into marketplace. I mean, anecdotally for us, you know, that volatility spike, kind of the first one kind of really around March, you know, for us, we were, we were on the phone with all of our, you know, managed account clients saying, you know, let's have an investment committee. Let's call an impromptu one. Within days, they were either making the decision um, that the portfolios were well positioned. The asset consultant was brought in to say, guys, how are we positioned? Are we okay? Some groups said, we've already built the portfolios to accommodate this. Others were positioning. Others were taking, you know, whether it was um, taking out some fixed interest allocation that wasn't delivering on what that diversity they were looking for, hedging out global equity exposure. Um, wasn't necessarily about moving to cash, but it was also about making sure that they do capitalize on the upside as well. So we, we saw, you know, a huge amount of movement in that kind of early period. And, you know, James, you don't mind me saying this kind of, James and I were working on a client build kind of in the, in the late up to March. And if you take this group kind of a month before, <laughs> And right when COVID hit, they would have been in a very difficult position had they not built the managed account, had they not, you know, started moving all of their clients into those portfolios because the flexibility that they had in a matter of a month to, you know, to be able to kind of do the right thing for their clients uh, was, 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 was really, pretty, pretty yeah. good. This episode is proudly sponsored by NetWealth. Launching 20 years ago, this ASX-listed company has ranked number one for overall platform functionality and user satisfaction by investment trends for the past five years. As the financial advice landscape changes, it's important now more than ever to embrace new technology and enhance the way you do business. With this change comes your chance to innovate, explore new perspectives, and realize new efficiencies. Visit the NetWealth website to learn more and get the PDS, which clients should read before making a decision products issued by net wealth investments limited yeah look it feeds into something i wanted to come around to the idea of rigor you know having the right people on investment committees and the decisions you're making at these investment committee levels uh, you know affect a lot of clients now right i mean how how's the industry going in terms of building out rigor on its investment committees, how do you know what rigor is? Uh, I presume, Alan, you're looking at it from the RE perspective. Can you talk a little bit about how that's going? Do you think that's a journey? Is that are we part way through that process, or do you think you know some advice businesses have have nailed it and others haven't? Where where are we in that journey? Yeah, I mean, I can only talk to to what we see in the groups that we work with, but we we make it really clear from the outset that there's a bar, and there's a bar around compliance governance. Um, that's required for a financial product. 
because they are effectively building now a financial product mm. and the bar goes up with that. We will only work with groups that, that really accept that, understand that, embrace that and, and put the structures in place to allow you to deliver upon that. Um, absolutely, from our perspective, you know, um, by the time we have built a solution and we bring it to, in James's case, the NetWealth Supernation Trustee, you know, that whole structure is put in place. It's agreed around the roles and responsibility of everybody that sits on that investment committee. And we look for, firstly, capability and expertise that isn't internal in the business. And in most cases, it probably isn't the standard that you'd need it to. Um, you outsource it. And that's either in the role of an asset consultant or as an external model manager. Um, we look at how decisions are being made. So, for example, we can't have you know a bunch of people just overriding an asset consultant, um, you know, just with opinion. So again, that's why we sit on the investment committee. We want to make sure there's a good due process around how decisions are being made. Um, we have a unique lens because we do sit on that investment committee. It does allow us to see in practice, you know, how we've worked with that group to set it up. Does it actually work in that way? Um, we've got the ability to work with both the asset consultant and the advice business to adapt that model if we're seeing issues. Um, and in some cases, we, we have seen, you know, maybe the wrong person's gone on the investment committee and maybe mm. they don't have the expertise or capability. That person gets what, can get swapped out. Mm. Um, or we see the asset consultant maybe, um, you know, needing to do more in a particular area to, you know, um, beef up process. And that's something that's continually evolving. Mm. Um, so so it, it, you're right, mate, it, it is a journey. And, and I think I think the groups that are coming through us um, are are definitely building that rigor. Mm. I think when we look forward and when we look at you know these really large advice practices, and we're talking about now this institutionalization of mm. the advice business, and these are talking you know five hundred million plus a billion plus. What comes with that? We can talk about that in a little more. What comes with that is a lot more complexity, a lot more investment decision making. The solutions that you need to have in place for that, the capability you need to have wrapped around that yeah. lifts. Are yeah. you see, are you seeing um, you know some of the more institutional consultants coming into this area, and um, where's where's some of the best talent? I mean, for listeners out there who perhaps are either building out their own investment committees or have their own, and um, are making sure they've got the right brains and um, and and thinking in the mix. Uh, you know, where, where's some of the best talent? How, what, what's a good mix? I think it starts with understanding what you need, yeah. and 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 what what do you want the asset consultant or external model manager to actually do and yeah. bring to the committee? Because we've got models where there's one, and we've also got models where there's a, just two or three. You might have somebody that kind of brings a more of a asset allocation lens. Somebody else might bring a manager selection, investment selection lens. Um, we've also got groups, for example, that say, look, you know, we actually want to have an offset. We might have a primary asset consultant that is responsible for bringing all the ideas, but the advice business says, look, you know, we actually want somebody to sit on the other side of the table to ask the questions that we may not ask. So you have an offset. And, and that just leads to better decisions because uh, there's more rigor in, the, in discussion and, and debate. Um, um, but I think it's really important to understand what you're looking for that group to do. And you're right, mate, there's, there's, a, there's a lot more groups coming into this space. And I think that's only a good thing because it's providing more choice and selection. And you've got your usual retail players, you've got your niche players, and you've got the larger in-stop asset consultants coming in as well. And, and I just think it's, it's, a, it's a really good thing for the industry. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd second that as well. You think you, We're seeing a, a significant amount of growth in, the, in that asset consultant space as well. And the, the challenge, we've obviously spoken more broadly across the industry that, that 
we're seeing clients that are, that are under-advised. We're also getting to the point in this kind of managed account space where we're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of consultants that are that are, uh, are kind of calling out their reaching capacity. So with more and more of these groups coming onto market with these skills, it just means that we can deliver more and more rigor across the industry. And I think just reinforcing something Alan was saying as well. So critically, there is there is no one right structure when it comes to delivering a solution, an investment committee solution. Um, depending on the size of the group, the capability that they have internally, um, it, there may be some very separate outcomes. Once you get to those groups at significant size, significant scale, they're in a position to to um, look at delivering that, intern- that 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 capability from an inter- uh, internally. So they're building large investment capability. At, but that obviously requires significant scale. You've then got those groups that kind of sit somewhere between that um, and the lower end, who are who are looking at leveraging those leveraging those external skills from the consultants um, to to build out that 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 um, investment committee. The other call out as well, and and this is this is uh, this is, and I'm sure Alan would um, would second this. But in terms of that committee charter and really setting the rules in place around how decision decisions can be made on the committee, you want to make sure that when decisions are being made, it's the right people that are being ma- that are making those decisions. So when it comes to voting on committees and things like that, it's about setting setting out a charter that ensures you can see the outcomes and, and the right people making those decisions. There's something I wanted to pick up there. Every group's different, but A, are you seeing these these types of structures make sense for a group of a particular size and how, how do you dictate that size at, you know, FUA, you know, sophistication of clients, so forth. And secondly, we, we've just seen this massive explosion really in the middle of the wealth space. Banks all exiting um, wealth, you know, around the Royal Commission. So in the last year yeah. and a half, this massive fragmentation. And now I presume you're seeing... Following that that fragmentation, a lot of vice businesses and licensees, those who are pushed into self-license lands, making partnerships, tying up, banding together maybe, or going alone, but putting some some resources into their, you know, go forward strategy three to five years or whatever. What what does this structure make sense for? Is that changing? And are you seeing a lot of larger, sophisticated businesses um, beginning to to build and grow in this space? I think I think the call out is that you can tailor a managed account to, to meet the needs of the group. So I, I don't necessarily think there is a, a, a one-size-fits-all. So there's not necessarily a, a fun figure that a group needs to meet to deliver a solution. Yes, there is generally some level of scale that's required. Um, but in saying that, in terms of the in terms of the types of clients that can be supported through a managed account, it really comes down to the objectives and the strategies that are being set for the, for the for individual portfolio. So I think historically... Managed account solutions were were seen as well. If we kind of go, if we kind of go through the evolution of the managed account, it started off as being very much uh, a, a simple equity-based solutions for high net worth clients to get to get access to equity models. But that quickly evolved as soon as licensees recognised the benefits that they could deliver to their clients and drive efficiencies. As an industry, we, we we very much started to move towards whole of account based solutions, and and that's not to say that in every instance as a managed account is a whole of account solution for a client. But what we're kind of looking at now much more is diversified models that can can support a range of clients. So historically, where the managed account was seen as kind of a high net worth affluent client. You can also structure managed accounts now in a way that enable you to support a, uh, support your entire business, irrespective of, of the size of the client. 
The other piece to pick up on, which you mentioned as well, and this really reinforces the growth that we're seeing in the managed account space. We, we talk about um, the fragmentation of the industry and the, the dislocation of advisors. Where we're obviously going through an interesting point in the in the industry, where a lot of the 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 larger the larger banks, their aligned practices, they're they're moving away, and, and it's 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 put especially businesses like NetWealth, many, uh, many of the other platforms in a really strong uh, position to, to work with these advisors, um, understand how they're looking to deliver their proposition to clients. Um, and it's, it's really reinforcing for these groups that are moving away from these aligned licensees. It's, it's giving them a, an opportunity to reset their practices. Um, and whether that's, whether that's looking to change their business in a way that, that evolves the way they're, they're delivering advice to their clients or whether it's looking at different uh, different ways to deliver their investment uh, proposition, the managed account is effective uh, the managed account effectively enables them to tick both of those boxes while whilst ensuring they're continuing to find the, to deliver that solution to clients. So you think about a group that's kind of moving into that self-licensed space, um, they've, they've, they've moved out of structures whereby they've been aligned to groups that have, have often provided investment capability to them, investment philosophy. They're now in a position where they can build that for themselves. They can leverage their own internal capability. They can build that with, with businesses like uh, NetWealth and IronBark um, and, and really enable them to evolve their practice. I think, I think Matt, to your, your point around, you know, what's the right size and scale, I think it presupposes in some cases that everyone's building a solution and that's not the case. Mm. You know, so, so for some practices, there are, you know, if you think about all the benefits of a managed account, well, that can be delivered through using somebody else's product. You know, so there's off-the-shelf solutions from fund managers, asset consultants, and other groups that are on the menu that groups can use straight away. Um, it's really then when you're getting into, okay, I want to build something bespoke, tailored. Yes, you need to be a certain size to do that. Um, and you need to do that for cost efficiency, but also be able to get the scale. Because mm-hmm. one of the big things around this is if you take a kind of a, a best interest duty perspective, if you're moving clients out of a whole bunch of managed funds into a managed account with the same managed funds, the fee goes up. <laughs> yeah. Because now you've got an RE fee and an administrator fee added mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. So, so your best interest duty comes from having, can be met by having your scale and size to be able to command discounting on pricing from the underlying fund managers, such that the cost of clients is at least on par, if not lower. So the clients put in a better position from a, from a fee yeah. perspective, if not from a, an investment solution perspective. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's, that's, um, that's going to be really important to kind of understand. And the groups that are kind of building out and, and reforming in new practices, the managed account is a flexible structure that can work across the industry. For many of those guys, mm-hmm. they're, they're accumulating. They're either buying, acquiring practices. Some of those practices will have a predictor view on what platform they like to use. So being able to have a managed account that can sit on multiple platforms, yeah. have the same IP, same investment decision-making, multiple implementation across platforms, I think is the future for some groups uh, as well and, and um, allows that flexibility. We'll wrap up soon and are interested in your both your views on you know what the future state is, what advice business models might look like in years to come if this um, trend continues. Is it Making advisors focus more on advice and less on the investment, even though the investment outcome for clients perhaps is more sophisticated, seems like it's giving them the opportunity to stick to advice and not be involved in the investment? Or is it going the other way around? Is it that advisors are feeding off these models and uh, working with investment committees closer and getting more and more sophisticated about how they think about markets? Which way is it heading, do you reckon? I think a call out there is it really supports the kind of the the, the push for holistic advice. 
So when you, when you think about the, the the advisor engagement with their clients, we speak about the efficiency that can be generated uh, generated through a managed account. By building that efficiency, it obviously enables the advisor a greater opportunity to to focus on the needs of the client. Yeah. And another another piece that is um, uh, a great benefit of the managed account, we spoke about the consistency implementation. It means that when it comes to client education and, and being able to um, share insight with clients, it, it makes it a lot easier because you've got a, you've got a model that is that is delivering consistent outcomes to clients. You're able to initiate that and build a, build efficiency by delivering those investment outcomes to a range of clients. So it means when it comes to client education, client support, you're able to focus much more on that piece to help clients understand why changes have been made and what the outcomes are, rather than focusing a lot more on the administrative aspects that, that are often often necessary under a non-discretionary structure. Mm. Yeah, I tend to agree. I yeah. think, I think it, it, gets, it gets advisors away from, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a stock picker or I'm a manager yeah. picker, and more, as, as James was saying, around education. And, and it is something that has been designed with that practice's clients in mind. So if we think about the, you know, if there are any members of that advice business on the on the investment committee, they're, they're there as client advocates to make sure that the solution continues to be relevant for their needs and that it supports the educational messages that are going out to their clients. Um, I think the thing that we that we see in the future here as these groups get larger um, is the solutions will need to be more sophisticated. Because yep. if you think about what these managed accounts or MDAs or whatever solutions there are. We do it in, in funds as well. Um, I mean, in, 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 a, in essence, you know, they're, they're becoming the new multi-manager products that were, you know, 10 years ago, you know, the ones on First Choice or on, you know, MLC or the yeah. others. Um, the capabilities you will need to have inside those from an investment perspective will evolve beyond your traditional assets that currently sit on a platform. Mm. Your ability to deal with illiquid assets, with hedge funds, mm. offshore, offshore vehicles, Cayman investments, um, direct assets. You know, how do you actually deal into a model kind of where the client has a beneficial interest in the underlying asset and you're trying to rebalance at the asset level as opposed to being able to manage at the top, mm. top level? Mm. So, so the platforms will need to evolve around been able to support that for the larger groups. Um, and I, I think ultimately it leads to better client outcomes um, because you're going to have more consistent investment mm. performance and all the benefits they get from having broader choice. I think the buying power is going to be essential for these groups as well. Been able to command not only institutional pricing, but also be able to command um, tailored solutions from the underlying mm. managers. I don't want your offshore product. I actually want you to build me a fund specific to my needs because I've actually got the assets big enough to actually see that. Yeah. Um, and in order to get to that point, do you see a bit of aggregation happening? Like we're probably at a point of, um, you know, um, peak fragmentation perhaps um, or, uh, um, you know, I'm not sure interested in your view on that, um, where, where we're at. But, um, but uh, in order to get to that more sophisticated and larger fund, you know, with bigger buying power, I presume there needs to be more aggregation among these. I, I think there's a couple of things. I think, it, mm. yes, yes, it's fragmenting to a point, but it's reforming in new groups. Mm. Um, but the groups that are investing in this investment capability, that are putting people process technology around that, not only building solutions for their own practices will ultimately turn their head to groups outside and offer on a on a public menu basis. And so that scale and 
aggregations not just going to come from their own practices actually going to become this becomes a solution that other practices will choose to use because yeah. they can see the investment that's been made in, in technology yeah and, and not only will it attract attract groups to the investment solution it'll it'll attract group it'll attract advisors to these licensees that are offering these these types of solutions so matt yeah. to your point in terms of aggregation if you've got if you've got groups that are offering that support to their advice their advice practices they're going to attract those to they're going to attract more advisors yeah we've seen the banks exit wealth maybe the new large wealth professional services business could be a one or two man band now with a fresh piece of paper and you know aggregating towards um you know building out a model or do you think um, it's the ones with scale already that are you know the ones that are kind of in that middle market that are probably more likely to to be more of the larger networks in the future yeah. i think it yeah i think that like, like you said it, it, We've touched on the fact that managed account solutions can support a range of different structures. In terms of being very much able to drive that scale, you do need size. You, you do need access to, to clients and advisors. So you would expect it would be those groups that are looking yeah. to grow and increase, the, increase their scale. Great conversation, guys. It was uh, really interesting and um, appreciate the, uh, all the insights. With that, James and Alan, uh, thanks a lot. No Thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Bye. Take care, James. 